Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. I'm here to tell you about Bolin Brand Sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bolin Brand Sheets get softer with every wash. They're made from the rarest organic cotton and designed to get softer over time. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee, plus 15% off your first order with code BUTTERY. So head to bollandbranch.com today. Exclusions apply. See site for details. I'm Julia Gillard, and this is a podcast of one's own. I'm offended by the lack of women in positions of leadership and the way those that do make it are treated. Today, I help lead the Global Institute for Women's Leadership at King's College London, headquartered in the Virginia Woolf Building. In 1929, Virginia said she aspired for women authors to have the space to write in a room of one's own. Here, I want women leaders to have a podcast of one's own. My guest for this episode is Pamela Hutchinson, Global Head of Diversity and Inclusion for Bloomberg. In fact, Global Leader and Diversity and Inclusion Legend. Now, Pamela, you grew up in a household you described as ethnically and culturally diverse. Can you tell us about your family background? Yeah, sure. So my parents came from the Caribbean. My father came from Grenada. And my mother came from Barbados and they met here in the UK. My father was, however, half Scottish. And also my dad's mother came from an Indian descent as well. So we had a very sort of eclectic mix of different cultures in our house. And we also celebrated various different cultures from across the globe. And it was very evident in the food that we ate as well, that it was from all over the world. So growing up, I was very used to having different cultures, different experiences. In fact, I found going into the workplace quite an odd place because it wasn't as diverse as what I was used to growing up. It's a fantastic story about family background and it sounds delicious as well. Mm. But you went on to study law as well as sociology at university, but then you didn't become a lawyer. Instead, you became a pioneer in the diversity and inclusion space. Why not law? I love studying law. I love the kind of black and whiteness of it. And I loved learning about how you applied the law to everyday life. And so I kind of thought that that would be the career that I would follow. And I did practice for a very short time. But I think I'm also very creative. And there isn't a lot you can do really with the law to be creative. And also nobody really wants to come and see a lawyer to tell them, bring them good news. And people were frightened of me a lot of the time if a lawyer turned up. So I think inevitably I'm a very sort of positive, optimistic, creative type of individual. So I think it was inevitable that I was going to end up doing something, although I have to admit DNI wasn't necessarily the thing that I was thinking of at the time. Just share a very quick story about how I fell into it. So I happened to be sitting outside the head of HR's office for a company called Bechtel that I used to work for. And there was an article called Managing Diversity and Inclusion in the UK. Now we're talking 24 five-ish years ago and I started reading it as I was waiting to go in to see the head of HR 
And I just got engrossed in this. And it was all about just equality and fairness. It spoke very much to who I was as an individual. And as I went in to see the head of HR, I said, we should be doing something about this. We should be more proactive. We should be, because if we're more proactive, then you won't need to be calling someone like me all the time. And he said to me, well, if you're so interested in it, you go do something about it. <laughs> go and do some research. And I said, OK, I will. And off I went and I did some research and I came back and I did this costed review of what we should be doing at Bechtel to drive DNI. And that was really the beginning of it. I was then asked to go and speak at the Top 400 conference in Dallas about DNI. I did that. And I was asked by the head of the company, Riley Bechtel, if I would lead a DNI agenda at the firm. And so it began, really. I didn't plan to go into DNI, if anything. Actually, I fought a bit against going into diversity and inclusion. I think back then, as a black woman doing DNI, it felt a little bit too stereotypical. And I never wanted to be a stereotype. But I'm glad I did because it's been the best thing I've ever done. And, and what was your substantive job role when you picked up that magazine and got entranced by diversity and inclusion? Employment lawyer. Employment <laughs> lawyer. Okay, so that was the step from law into the work yes. that you do now. Yeah. And when you talk to family and friends about it, did they think it was a good move or were they a bit like you worried that you'd get pigeonholed? Yeah, oh gosh, yeah, my family. My parents were, you know, you've gone to university and you've got this law degree, why would you want to do this job? Like, there's no status in DNI. There's only really status in law. So, and a lot of my friends said the same thing to me. It's like, why would you want to do that? Like, what is it? Like, how do you explain it? It took a long time for me to kind of come to the realisation that it was something that actually would be good for me. I realise now it's my calling and that I have a huge passion for the job, but it was a difficult decision to make and to tell the absolute truth, I tossed a coin. <gasps> when? <laughs> when was <laughs> the coin toss? The coin toss was, do I continue with a career in DNI or do I continue in the law? And I tossed the coin and it landed on DNI. Phew! <laughs> <laughs> and this is true. I have to admit, it was a kind of calculated risk because I did know that, you know, if it didn't work out in DNA, I could always go back to, to doing, yeah. So it wasn't a complete risk, but it was a, I couldn't make my mind up and I wanted fate to decide it for me. That's an incredible <laughs> story. So a toss of a coin and here we are. And when you tossed that coin and then decided you were going to invest your personal time in diversity and inclusion, Back then, was it hard to get business leaders engaged? Did they just think this was a bit of, you know, kind of stuff that people thought they should be talking about, but they really weren't taking it on board? Or did you actually push against open doors? Oh, gosh, no, definitely didn't push against open doors. When I started off doing DNI, I kid you not, there must have been about five or six people doing diversity and inclusion in the entire country, and I knew all of them. It was definitely not a topic that was discussed. Back then, way back then, we really only just had had legislation to prohibit discrimination, and so... It was very difficult. I remember back in those days working in engineering and it being perfectly acceptable to find walk on the floors and, and some of the engineers would have posters of naked women, calendars of naked women. And that was typical. And it wasn't 
you know, frowned upon either. No. <laughs> and you saw very few women in engineering back in those days. I mean, I know there are very few now, but there were even less then. So no, it was very hard. I remember starting out doing this work and calling up another engineering firm and saying, I'm just starting out doing DNI and engineering, and I'd love to collaborate with a number of other companies and competitors. And the phone being put down on me a few times by people who said, why are you wasting your time? Why Bechtel wasting their time focusing on diversity. It's not a priority. So yeah, it took a long time before I think companies started to sort of see the business benefits of diversity and inclusion, but it was definitely not open door. And what sustained you during that period when people weren't taking it seriously? And you must have thought to yourself from time to time, gee, I wish that coin had landed the other <laughs> way around. I'm stubborn. <laughs> And I've always been stubborn and I've always like if I've got my uh, my sort of sight set on something, I will see it all the way through. And I just knew that it was a passion for me. It was a calling. I knew that I would never rest until I'd made some progress doing that. I never give up on anything, not immediately anyway. So I think what kept me going is thinking, you know, it is going to change. It has to change. The world is going to change and I just have to keep with it. And that kept me going, I think. And then, you know, slowly but surely you get these quick wins and then that sustains you for a bit longer and then another quick win and another quick win and you just keep going. And how much has it changed over those 20 years? If you could go back, you know, and tell your young self tossing the coin, it mm. will be like this, how would you summarise the amount of change? I mean, it's funny. We all get frustrated by the pace of change, and I am even one of those people. But actually, when I look back and I think about where I came from and where I am now, I mean, it's like night and day. The fact that, you know, we have organisations, include you know, including ours, where we have diversity functions in place, you have goals and targets, you have priorities, you have senior leaders talking about diversity and inclusion. The 30% Club at Bloomberg, we have the Gender Equality Index where we are looking at companies across the financial, oh, in fact, across industry and tracking progress that they're making on gender diversity. I think if 25 years ago, I perhaps wouldn't have thought that we would be where we are now. We've made a tremendous amount of progress. Given the amount of progress we have made in terms of activity and in terms of just the amount of money that's spent on DNI, what does disappoint me though is that progress has been very slow. I'm still optimistic though, having said that, but progress has been slow, but the activity has increased significantly. Did you ever think to yourself when you were starting out on diversity and inclusion, this will be a short term job because once people get serious about change, it'll happen quite quickly. Did you ever think that or did you always know that it was going to be, you know, long term, you know, continuing to carry the case, generating more activity and then as we aim to now, generating more real change? No, I thought it would be over within 10 years. Right. <laughs> so <laughs> even, even though it was... specific here about 10 years. <laughs> I remember at the time when I first came into it and the narrative at the time was, oh, all we need to do is have more women coming up through the pipeline, more women coming into the marketplace and within 10 to 15 years, workplace would look different. 25 years later and the workplace does not look very different. So no, I really thought by now I'd have left DNI, I'd go back to law, I'd be doing something completely different. I never thought that I'd still be here. 
as much as I'm very optimistic about it, sadly, I probably will retire and still there will be work to do. Mm. And so there's a sort of cross currents there, isn't there? You were you started in DNI when it was really hard and now it's easier to be a practitioner in this space. There's more openness around it. But back then, you also thought the rate of change would be far quicker. Mm. When we think about diversity and inclusion today, the evidence is pretty strong, isn't it? I mean, how would you summarise the evidence as to why businesses need to get serious about diversity and inclusion? I mean, there's been so much research done over the last 10 or more years around the benefits of gender diversity for organisations. McKinsey came out with some research about three years ago, which looked at organisations and for those in the top quartile for gender diversity, they're 15% more likely to have financial returns above their respective national industry medians and conversely for those in the bottom quartile they're less likely to achieve above average financial returns. Catalyst Oh, gosh, more than 10 years ago, came out with research that showed that companies that had women on boards were more profitable than those companies that didn't have women on their boards. There is mounting research to show the business benefits of diversity and inclusion, and particularly gender diversity. And increasingly, what we're seeing, or what I've been seeing over the time that I've been doing DNI, is that clients are asking more questions around what organisations are doing on gender diversity. And so there is a push also from clients nowadays around gender. So I think there has never been a time where, as we have right now, where there is more and more questions being asked around gender, where the business case for gender diversity has been made. So there's certainly lots of data and evidence out there. And and the interesting thing, though, I think, is that despite the fact that there's lots of research that shows that there is a business case for gender diversity, that we haven't made the progress. For me, that's the question that we should be asking ourselves. Why is that? Mm. And that's a question we ask ourselves kind of every day at the Global Institute for Women's Leadership. And so we want to get far more thoughtful about the interventions that bring the biggest impact. Mm. You know, we seem now to have more will for change, but we're still struggling to get the best mechanisms to make sure that the biggest amount of change gets made. In your experience, what do you think works? I mean, you're now leading diversity and inclusion globally at Bloomberg. Have you got a sense across your career about what has really made the most difference, the things that you would recommend to other businesses and organisations? Well, I think, firstly, I I want to say that the business case for gender diversity, or business case for diversity full stop, has been something that has really pushed the agenda. And most organisations will have established what their business case is for diversity. I do think, though, that we kind of underestimate the value of just doing the right thing. And I think, actually, doing it because it's the right thing to do actually sustains it a lot further than the business case for gender diversity. And where I've seen organisations really progress on diversity, it's because fundamentally they believe it's the right thing to do. And I would put Bloomberg in one of those categories. Whilst we believe the business case, actually, fundamentally, it's the right thing to do. And so I I do think sometimes that we get too caught up in the business case. And actually, if people would at least think about doing this because it's the right thing to do, I think it would progress it a lot further. I think there's a combination of the right thing to do. There's the business case, but also very important is accountability for driving DNI. I think unless you have senior leaders holding the organisation accountable for driving DNI, then it doesn't happen. 
you can believe the business case, you can even believe it's the right thing to do. But if we're not holding people accountable for driving DNI, then the progress isn't made. And so what I've seen has been the most successful, and we do it at Bloomberg too, is where leaders not only hold people accountable, but they ask questions and they follow up and they measure progress. At Bloomberg, our chairman, Peter Grauer, and myself meet once a year with the heads of business. We review their business plans on diversity and inclusion. We give them direction and guidance. We challenge them. We send them off for another year to go and work on their plans. We review their progress every year. That's so important because they know that that conversation is going to be had. And therefore, they work hard to make sure that they deliver against their business plans. So I do think, you know, having some sort of mechanism in place by which you hold people accountable for driving DNI is an important facet of the diversity agenda. I think many organisations spend a lot of time just focused on activity, whether it's through their networks or events, but not really measuring DNI as they would measure any other business objective. If you can get it in a place where DNI is as important as the business, then I think you're more likely to be successful with your diversity agenda. And Bloomberg, because it's such a big global business, you would get insights into different cultures, different countries, how they're approaching mm. diversity and inclusion. Do you see any lessons coming through that? Some countries doing it better or any reflections about what makes it easier to approach the diversity and inclusion agenda? Or does it really boil down to this leadership engagement, leadership accountability? Yeah, sure. I think globally, there are different ways of looking at gender diversity. And in some cultures, you know, flexibility works and other cultures, it doesn't. And some cultures, you know, women are leading on, you know, in organisations and other cultures, it they aren't. And I think, you know, we do take different pieces from different countries and we leverage that globally to try and be successful. But I think fundamentally, it's about culture, whatever culture it is across the globe. If it's a culture that that sustains and nurtures women, then it's going to be a culture that's going to women are going to be successful in. For us at Bloomberg, it's very much about holding our leaders accountable for driving this wherever they are in the world. And if we can do that, and on top of that, we have a culture that sustains and nurtures and helps to grow women, then we're more likely to be successful. My colleague at the Global Institute for Women's Leadership, Rosie Campbell, who's our director, likes to remind that women are 52% of the adult population. Does it strike you a bit oddly that we use the language of diversity around the majority grouping, women? <laughs> yeah, I say that. In fact, I said it last week. Somebody was talking to me about this and I said, isn't it odd that we call women diverse when we're 50% of the population? I suppose we aren't diverse in the population, but we are diverse when it comes to organisations. So I guess why that is. But yeah, it doesn't make any sense at all, really. It's just uh, the terminology that we've <laughs> accepted and it's driving our work. Looking at your work at Bloomberg and being so linked in with businesses around the globe, is there any sense that people are getting a bit of gender fatigue, that we know we've talked about this for so long, we need to move on to other areas, other agendas, why isn't it fixed yet? Is frustration setting in? Oh gosh, yes, frustration's been setting in for some time. I think, again, it goes back to the progress has been slow. We haven't seen the gender parity that we would have expected by now. And I think 
In my view, though, we're doing the same things and expecting different results. And we haven't really come up with something that's um, maybe a bit bolder, a bolder move to, to move the agenda forward. And I think if we could just keep on beating on the same drum around gender diversity without making any progress, then people get bored of it. So I think it's really important. I think we look at this topic with a different lens that perhaps we think about it in a different way. And one of the things that we've been doing at Bloomberg just to kind of stimulate interest on this topic again is that we recognise that women are not uniform, that women come in different shapes and sizes and ethnicities. And, and so we've started looking at the intersection across women, so intersectionality of women, and how that whilst the gender agenda has made slow progress, it has made some progress. But the progress that we've seen tends to support white women more than any other group of diverse women. And so we've been looking at that and exploring why that's the case and what we can do differently and how we can better engage across all women as opposed to certain groups of women. And that has brought about quite a lot of interest. And also, I think has engaged women across all their diversities in a way that perhaps the women's agenda hasn't today. I remember you told a, a story when we were together about you being at an event where there was sort of applause because a more diverse board, I think it was, or advisory yes. committee had been created. And yet when you looked at the picture that was unveiled, it was all white women who mm. had been added to the committee. Can you talk to us about your reaction when you saw that? Yeah, this was at an event that I went to several years ago. It was looking at best practices around gender diversity and a particular company stood up and showed a big picture of their board 10 years ago, which were all white men. And they then showed this picture of what their board looked like now today, which was a mix of men and women. So it was great gender diversity. But what was very obvious to me, and perhaps very obvious to me as a black woman, was that the whole board was white. And I asked the question and I said, great that you've made progress on gender diversity, but where do people like me, I don't see myself in there. And the lady said to me, oh, Pamela, that was just the reason the board looks like that is because we were just focused on gender diversity. So I asked her if I wasn't a woman <laughs> and she sort of said, oh, well, we'll get to the black program later. And I asked the question again. So does that not make me a woman? And it really kind of drove home to me at that point that perhaps the gender agenda wasn't for people that look like me because organisations or some or that particular organisation, I should say, didn't see me as a woman. Mm. They saw me as a black person first. You know, I feel that it's really important that as we think about gender, that we think about, and I've said this a hundred times before, we think about all of us and not some of us mm. to move this agenda forward. I also feel that if the gender agenda continues to support one group of women over another group of women, then we haven't really been successful. No, it's for all of us. It's absolutely. for all of us. Yeah, that's a very important insight. You were on the 2017 power list of Britain's most influential people of African and African-Caribbean heritage. I'm sure that that was an accolade for you. I mean, what, that's fantastic. But looking at lists like that and thinking about your own journey, 
in what ways would you say you've encountered discrimination in your life, whether that's based on gender or based on ethnicity? Um, how, would, how would you see that personally? And what do you say to young people who would have seen that power list and are now view you as a role model about how they should be dealing with these issues in their lives? I could honestly say that I can't remember very many times in my career that I've actually encountered direct discrimination. There may well have been indirect discrimination that I'm not aware of, but certainly direct discrimination, I honestly can't think of very many times that that's happened. I do recall one time where I was, this was many years ago, and in one of my earlier jobs, and I went in to ask for a pay increase because I thought that I deserved a pay increase for what I had been doing. And my manager saying to me at the time, well, Pamela, your husband has a really great job. Why would you want a pay increase? Your husband's really well remunerated. We happen to be working at the same company at the time. I, 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 words, I still can't even find the words to say. <laughs> I mean, it was just shocking. And I, that is one of very few examples that I can think of over my career where I have personally suffered direct discrimination. I think occasionally, you know, there have been times where people have made assumptions about me based on what they see and what they think and stereotyping. But I think as I've got older, I think that happens less and less. I think as you're coming up through, you know, your career, as, as I was coming up through my career, I tried very hard to make sure that I wasn't seen as a stereotype. In fact, I worked very hard to be the complete opposite of any stereotype for people that look like me. I think as a result, I have become successful. I try to be not what people expect me to be, but equally I am being who I am. I am being authentic in that, but I try not to be what people expect me to mm. be. So can you describe what sort of steps you've taken to not be the stereotype? It's funny, when I first came into the workplace, now remember, I've grown up in a very eclectic mix of cultures, good and bad from all of them. And I think over one of the dominant characteristics coming from a family that is traditionally West, from the Caribbean is that we do tend to be quite vivacious and loud and very kind of, you know, um, exuberant and, and strong. And I'm very used to being like that at home with my family or my parents. And I think to anybody who would look inside and watch us having a conversation at dinner might think that we were all shouting at each other and not getting on, but actually just, just the way we all got, spoke to each other. And I remember starting in the workplace and bringing all of that energy into the workplace and it just not landing in the same way and very quickly recognising that whilst it was important to be authentic because I recognise there's nobody like me and that's important that I had to be authentic with skill. And I think that was the thing that's kind of, I've led with as I've come up through my career, which is it's important to be yourself, but to know that you have to do it skillfully and you have to know the nuances and the protocols in organisations and navigate those skillfully, but still be who you are. And I think that's kind of what I've been doing really is I am still quite loud and confident and speak my mind, but I'm just conscious of how I do that in a way that is palatable, not only within the organisation, but to the people that I meet every day, who again are coming from a different cultural context. So many people have said to me that I talk a lot about authenticity and I do. But as I say to most people, it's about doing it skillfully, which is important. 
During this time of being a diversity and inclusion leader, you've also brought up your family, you've got kids. How did that all work for you, trying to put together the you know, family life, caring for children, as well as such a high-powered corporate career? Not easily, if I'm completely honest. It's difficult juggling life, home, work. It is a real challenge. And my youngest child has special needs as well. So there's a whole entourage of support that I need to have available for him and to be available for him as well. It's not always been easy. I have worked for most of my career, though, a four day week until recently. And then I decided to go to five days because my children are teenagers now and they can deal a little bit. They can handle mum not being around quite as much. But yeah, a four day week has been something that I've been doing for the last 16 years. And it was really important to me to have that one day a week where I got to the school gate, where I spoke to the parents, where I found out what was going on at school. That was critical to me. I think it's really important for mothers who work to know what's going on at the school because so much happens that you don't know about. And actually knowing, having a few girlfriends at school that you can kind of connect with and find out what's going on at school is really helpful. So for me, the Friday was the day for me to do that and to get my children to school. But it is very difficult. But I have to say that I worked four day week. I was never secret about it. I never put it in my signature strip that I didn't work Fridays, but I wasn't secretive about it because I think it was really important for other women to see, and men actually, to see me as a role model that I could still hold down a high-powered job because back then I was the head of Europe, Middle East and Africa, so it was not exactly a small job. I could still hold down that job, do really well and get promoted and do it on four days and it was still possible. So I think it's really important when you do work flexibly to not hide it or make it invisible, which is what often happens within organisations. I think there's a combination of fear that if people know you're working flexibly, they'll take it away or that they'll start assuming that your priorities are more with home than work, which they may well be, but you can still do your job. I think if we had more people being open about working flexibly in organisations, whether formally or informally, I think that would help to change the company cultures, company cultures around flexible working. Do you think there's a gender difference on that? Male executives, men in the workplace more likely to want to hide the flexible working because they're worried about how it would be perceived, whereas it's viewed as a more regular thing for women to work flexibly? That's an interesting question. I think informal flexibility, so let's say a guy was dropping his children off at school or leaving early to go and watch, I don't know, ballet recital for argument's sake. Strangely, there seems to be a lot of kudos in doing that. Oh, look at the guy who's going off to do something with the kids. They get a lot of kind of like brownie points for doing that sort of thing. Not so much if it's a formal flexible working arrangement, but for the informal flexibility, it's viewed differently to a woman who drops the the kids off at school or goes to see a ballet recital but generally speaking I think it's not culturally and I'm talking about the UK seen as acceptable that men raise children it's still seen as the, the role for women and so it's not like you know sort of Scandinavian countries where Childcare is shared and that's perfectly normal and uh, acceptable. We're not in that space here in the, the UK yet. And it's got to change, I really, before I think men can start to work flexibly in the same way that women do. Mm. 
And one of the things the research certainly shows is that if there is greater flexibility, if both men and women are taking the time to raise kids, then there's less of a penalty paid for having used that flexibility. Mm. So often women get on the slower career track mm. because they've been seen to use all these flexibilities, whereas if they're shared by men and women, that kind of goes away. Absolutely. So very I important. agree. There's a series of big questions I've been asking every guest. We start with a fact, which might be a fun fact or maybe not so much fun. Your fact is a Pew Research Centre survey has shown that 55% of men have become more reluctant to mentor women since Me Too for fear of being falsely accused. How does that make you feel? It's interesting. I was talking about something very a similar statistic with my husband a few weeks ago, and he said that he's not frightened of mentoring women because he doesn't feel that he says anything inappropriate or does anything inappropriate. And I thought that was a really good point. So I think if perhaps if they are worried about behaving inappropriately, that's probably part of the 55%. I don't know. If you had superpowers, all of the power, What's the one thing in the world that you would change for women? If you had 24 hours and you could do anything, what's the one big thing you'd do? If I could wave my magic wand overnight and we all were were to wake up, I would like to think that women were not the major carers of children. That would be a pretty good overnight. (laughs) Virginia Woolf says the best men can do is not talk about themselves anymore. Pamela says... The best thing that men can do is talk about gender diversity. Very good answer. (laughs) Thank you very much, Pamela. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. You've been listening to a podcast of one's own with Julia Gillard from the Global Institute for Women's Leadership at King's College London. For more information on our work and to sign up to our updates, visit the Global Institute for Women's Leadership website. This podcast has been produced by Lizzie Ellen and James Miller with Kings Online and additional editing by Nick Hilton. If you've liked what you've been listening to, please rate and review us with your preferred podcast provider and come back next time for another episode of A Podcast of One's Own with Julia Gillard. Listener.